What's your name? Tim Haggerty. What's your primary job? Broadcaster for the El Paso Chihuahuas. What is your side writing job? Seek out unique tales from minor league history. Coming up on the latest edition of Life Around the Seams, we talked to Tim Haggerty, except this time it's not an interview. It's just two guys talking who are baseball nerds who enjoy history, whether it is weird, obscure baseball history, or whether it's challenging what you thought you knew about baseball history, or whether it's just about the morality involved in history and records. These stories may or may not have something to do with baseball. At least that's the goal. We'll see how it turns out. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Hags, thanks for joining me for the latest edition of this podcast. Thank you. Good to see you again. I was pleasantly surprised when you asked me because you've had all these big-name guests. You've had Cody Decker, a Major League player. You have Zach Hampel. He's got books out, and uh, I thought it was a prank. I, I thought, well, why would you want me? But uh, this sounds like fun, what we're doing. Are you offended that I'm not going to interview you and find out everything about your life? No, no. I think your idea is better than that would be. Okay, so this is the idea. I went to Hags and said, all right, instead of um, you know the first four episodes of this podcast, I interviewed somebody or two people, and we found all about their life, and I'm going to continue to do that, but this is my podcast. There's no rules. I can do whatever I want, and so I decided that we're just going to tell stories that we think are interesting, and basically the idea is let's blow each other's minds with a story that we can't believe is true. So it doesn't matter if it's major league, if it's minor league, if it's recent, if it's old, whatever the case might be, I told Hags to come up with some of these stories, which he already does, and I've got a few myself, and we'll see if we can... It's kind of inspired by that podcast, um, What Really Happened. So this is what really happened in baseball, kind of. Before we start, though, I will ask you one question. The, the stories that you do, why did you start doing these, and what do you get out of finding these unique stories? Yeah, it was uh, kind of a gift that was given to me in 2012, uh, I did a book about the most unique minor league team names. Uh, that was an interest of mine. The first team I worked for was the Idaho Falls Chuckers. So many people would ask me about the name. Um, so I looked about, looked for a book about the most unique minor league team names and their origins and couldn't find one. So decided to write one. That became my hobby for a while. Well, all of a sudden, uh, it reaches a publisher, a contract evolves. Uh, this thing's really happening. And this editor calls and says, you know, I don't think this book will sell as it is. I think it needs some stories about the teams. And my first thought was, no, 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 this is about team names. But looking back, he was right. And I was very glad that that editor gave that criticism because that opened up my eyes to all sorts of minor league history. I remember um, finding the first one I ever found was a newspaper article about a Texas League game. 
in the 1890s, same Texas League that still exists now, that was delayed when a wild bull ran on the field. And that exact story was my first introduction to, like, wow, there are actually articles about minor league games that took place in the 1800s and in every decade since. And there was all sorts of wacky stuff that happened. So um, since then, I've loved newspapers.com, baseball encyclopedias, old Spalding and Reach guides. Um, and I should note also my uncle, his name's Al Arrighi, he's uh, retired, he's a Sabre member, and he was interested in my book and what I was doing, and uh, he'll also assist. That's become his hobby as well, looking through old baseball guides. So uh, it's become a fun hobby. All right, well, based on your fun hobby, that's why I thought that you'd be ideal for this topic. So you are the guest. I have some stories that I think are interesting. Mine might be short, they might be long, but you're the visitor on this podcast, so you're up first with our first unique story of baseball history. Okay, I'm going to take you to 1906. There was a town ball game in Pitcairn, Pennsylvania. P-I-T-C-A-I-R-N. If you have any Pennsylvanians listening, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing their name. But, um, you know, back then it was before television. These town ball games could get really popular. People weren't traveling to big cities as much back then. And there would be a local town that would compete against the railroad team from the other town out in western Pennsylvania. They called it the railroad town ball games. And in some cases, there were thousands of fans at these games. Well, in 1906, the left fielder uh, in this game was named B.F. Hicks, 23-year-old athletic guy. And there's a deep fly ball in foul territory in left field, and Hicks is running after it. And the fans are shouting at him, there's a train coming. (laughs) Hicks keeps on running, keeps on running. And this poor guy gets hit by a train. What? Wait, wait. Okay. I'm sorry. Continue. Your biggest what is yet to come. (laughs) Okay. When Hicks' dead body was found, he was holding the baseball. He caught it. (laughs) Okay, so we need to back up a little bit. There was a train that went... This was in foul territory or fair territory? Foul territory. But but close enough to the field that a batted ball was right on line with it. And there was a train that was coming by as he was pursuing said foul ball. Yes. And he just keeps on running after the ball. And he caught it. And understandably, people were stunned by this. And yet when they found his dead body, he's holding the ball and presumably got credit for the catch. Do you think that was that play was the inspiration from that scene in The Natural when there's a player who goes running after the ball and he crashes into the wall and he makes the catch and he dies and that's what allows Roy Hobbs to oh. start playing? I never thought about that. It could be. You know, it inspired Pat Murphy, the former El Paso Chihuahuas manager, who's now the Brewers bench coach. I told him this story one day a couple of years ago and he loved it. I'd see him every spring training. Hey, Haggerty, what was the name of that guy that held onto the ball even though he got hit by the train? He just loves this story. And um, even recently, just a year ago, when he was the Brewers bench coach, I got a random text one day in my hotel, Pat Murphy. <laughs> hey, what was the name of that guy? That guy? <laughs> so I get the feeling that you know he's bringing this up to his coaching friends and maybe even some players. But um, I'm not sure what the lesson is at the end of that story. You know, the really hard-nosed athlete might say, that guy did whatever it took to catch the ball. You know, the, what I take from it is watch out for trains. <laughs> and, and what I take out of it is that there was no spectator who thought, I'm going to save this man's life by, like, tackling him before he has a chance to get hit by the train. Yeah. Um, that's a good call. You know, of course, video doesn't exist of this, but 
Um, it was in the old baseball reach guide, and then there was a local newspaper article that talked about it. Um, I remember when I wrote an article about it, I called it Deadliest Catch. <laughs> We're laughing. The family know, of this poor, guy is probably not laughing, but I think enough time has passed. Exactly. You know, you think about the, the most famous catches where there's like a collision involved and there's Rodney McRae who went through the wall and, and that minor league game sometime in the 80s, and there is video of that. And then you have this Deadliest Catch, and then I'm sure there's probably others that are not coming to mind right now. Little side story: The videographer who shot that Rodney McRae bl- play, his name is Craig Beck. I know that guy. Uh, that game took place in Portland, Oregon. McRae was playing for Vancouver, and Beck tells a great story about that. Um, it was Memorial Day weekend, and there was nothing going on. And as you know, a lot of times the local sports guy, when they're shooting a minor league game, all they need is four or five highlights. Whereas if you're at a minor league game and there's a big rally in the first inning, those local sports guys can head back. So Beck is there, and nothing happened. It was just a slow game, and McRae's catch was late in the game. And there's nothing going on in town. It was, you know, no city council meetings, no robberies. It was a slow holiday weekend. So Beck says, I'll just stick around. And it's amazing to think of, had Portland had a big rally in the first inning, or if there was a fire across town, Beck gets dispatched, leaves the game, and there's no video of Rodney McRae running through the wall. And if you and I heard about that, wait a minute, the guy ran through the wall? We wouldn't believe it. Yeah, I remember those uh, blooper videos that started to come out like in the 80s and early 90s. And that's always one of the highlights that you would see is Rodney McRae running yeah. through the wall. All right, that's a good start. All right. I'm going to go something that's uh, – I'm going to go a bigger name. You're familiar with Pete Rose breaking the all-time hits record, correct? Sure. What do you remember about the night that he broke the all-time hits record? I remember the Padres pitcher, Eric Shaw, known for sitting on the mound. I remember it was against San Diego. I remember uh, his young son, I think, embracing him. Um, I remember all the Reds' teammates going to greet him at first base. I've subsequently read something on Sabre about whether or not he actually broke it that night. The Ty Cobb hits record is uh, sort of in question about how many total hits Cobb actually had. Well, that's very good because we're going to tell you that he did not actually break the all-time hits record that night, (laughs) that he actually broke it three days before. Really? And this goes back to the system of morality in baseball and how records were kept back in the old days. So in order to accurately tell the story of Pete Rose, we have to go back to the 1910s because Ty Cobb's all-time hits record, 4,191. Right, that was ingrained in a lot of our brains. 4,191 hits is how many he obtained. Well, it's the year 1910, and Ty Cobb and Nap LaJoy are famously competing for the batting title. Now, back in 1910, this is before Babe Ruth. It's before, there's, before home runs are a big deal. Obviously, there's no internet. There's no computers that keep up statistics. We take for granted that at the end of the day, we know what someone's batting average is. We know what everyone's batting average is. Well, they did not know this back in 1910. Associated Press and UPI did not produce daily statistics for everybody in in baseball. But people loved singles. They loved hits. They loved batting average. And so this was riveting the nation as much as a nation can be riveted when they don't know the actual numbers in said uh, heated battle between Nap LaJoy and Ty Cobb. So as it turns out, there was a brand new car that would go to the winner of the batting title. It was a Chalmers Detroit Model 30. It was valued at about $1,500 back then, which in today's money is about $40,000. So this is a really nice car. 
this is another thing that blows my mind is that people did not know who won the batting championship until February after the season. Really? Now it's around October 1st and we go, oh yeah, okay. When it, well, as soon as the season ends, we know who won the batting title. Well, the American League president, Ban Johnson, yes, his name was really Ban. <laughs> he was the only person who knew the official numbers, and he announced the batting championship in February. All right, so let's fast forward to the final weekend of the season. The newspapers were estimating what batting averages were going into the final weekend, but they didn't know for sure. They had estimated that Ty Cobb's average was about 383, and Nat LaJoy's average was about 376 going into the final day. Ty Cobb was secure enough in his lead that he chose to sit out the last couple of games. Mm. He said that his eyes were bothering him. Meanwhile, Nat LaJoy and the Cleveland Naps were playing a doubleheader at St. Louis the final day. And the St. Louis Browns decided that they wanted to help Nat LaJoy win the batting title. So what did they do? They had their rookie third baseman, Red Corindon. He played back, like way back. Like the most charitable accounts had him standing just on the edge of the outfield grass. The less charitable accounts had him playing short left field. Nat LaJoy bunted eight consecutive times toward third and was safe all eight times. (laughs) There was also one other time that was called a sacrifice that became a source of contention because they were trying to get that change to be a hit. So if you add it all up, Nap LaJoy went 8 for 8 on the final day, and he pushed his batting average up to 384. Ty Cobb was batting 383. Well, as you might imagine, this was quite the scandal. The Washington Post wrote, quote, Never before in the history of the game has the integrity of the game been questioned as it has by the 8,000 fans this afternoon. The United Press International wrote, The honesty and squareness which has won hundreds of thousands of admirers for America's great national pastime was entirely erased. So, Hags, why do you think the St. Louis Browns wanted Nat LaJoy to win the batting title instead of Ty Cobb? Cobb is renowned as a bad guy. They didn't like him. That would be my first guess. You know, you hear these stories. Remember the movie Field of Dreams, and they say you wouldn't believe the number of guys that wanted to play. Ty Cobb wanted to play, but we didn't like him, so we told him to stick it. It's like this famous (laughs) line. Also, the movie Cobb portrays him as being someone who was disliked. Well, we don't know for sure, but the more logical answer is that the St. Louis Browns players bet on Nap LaJoy. Oh. Because we were a nation of gamblers then, as we are a nation of gamblers now. The difference is the players back then gambled on a regular basis. Again, this is 1910. This is nine years before the famous Black Sox scandal. And the bookmakers probably gave you really good odds if you bet on Nap LaJoy because Ty Cobb had this lead. So the Browns players bunted. They allowed allowed Nap LaJoy to bunt so that they could win this bet. Well, the... President of the American League, Ban Johnson, was not amused by this. And they were trying to figure out a way to get around this scandal. So there's an official score by the name of Bob McCroy. And Bob McCroy somehow, quote, forgot to enter the stats from a game on September 24th. In that game, Ty Cobb had gone two for three. So if you add those stats, that two for three that they had forgotten to include, well, now Ty Cobb's average is 385, and Nat LaJoy's average is 384. So were the Cobb forgotten hits ever officially added to his total? Like, if I go to Cobb's baseball reference page, is it correct? That's a natural question. For 70 years, the ruse held up. The two hits were added to Ty Cobb's single season total, his career total, but they were basically counted double. 
they never took them away because they wanted basically the matter to go away. They didn't want this story to be perpetuated. So now it's 70 years later, Ty Cobb is long dead. His career total, we all know it, 4,191 hits is Ty Cobb's total. When in reality, he had two hits that were counted twice. So now there's a man by the name of Leonard Gettleson. This is a guy who collected baseball box scores as a kid. He might be related to you based on your (laughs) shared interests. And he found delight in quirky stories about baseball. He found a lot of mistakes about how baseball had been calculated back then. Again, it was by hand. It wasn't by computer. And one of the numbers that he discovered was the total of Ty Cobb. Now, Leonard Gettleson did not want to go around changing the historical record of Ty Cobb hits. He just decided that number is sacred. We're just going to leave it alone and pretend like it didn't happen. Now, there's another name. Another gentleman, his name is Pete Palmer. He was a computer programmer. He remains one of the most influential baseball thinkers of the last half century. And he also discovered this mistake. And Pete Palmer thought, what right is right, we should have the right number. So he corresponded with Leonard Gettleson about the mistake. They went to the microfilm of the American League's official score sheets, and they proved conclusively that Ty Cobb had been credited with two extra hits. Wow. So what do you think Major League Baseball did with this information? Mm. Hopefully, eventually, the right thing, but I don't know. Nope, they, they ignored it. The commissioner of baseball at the time was Bowie Kuhn. He basically said the statute of limitations had passed. And he said that unless you do a complete and thorough review of all statistics ever, you cannot make individual changes. And he said that he said that the review is not practical. So Ty Cobb had 4,189 hits but the official record would continue with 4,191 hits. Wow. So now we fast forward. It is September 11th, 1985, everything that you described. Pete Rose gets the hit off Eric Shaw, who famously sits down on the, on the mound. The, the son of Pete Rose, Pete Rose Jr., comes out, hugs him. Pete cries. The crowd cheers and cheers and cheers, and he has set the all-time record, when in reality, he set the record three days earlier <laughs> in a Sunday afternoon game at Wrigley Field against the Chicago Cubs. And those fans have no idea what they witnessed. Yes and no. In some ways, okay, so this is the other part about the story that's actually really interesting. So on that day in question, which Rose actually broke the record, the Cubs' original starting pitcher was a left-hander, Steve Trout. Pete Rose was the player manager at the time, and when the Cubs switched to a right-hander, Reggie Patterson, Rose decided to put himself in the lineup. He took out his good friend Tony Perez so that he could bat left-handed against the right-handed hitting Reggie Patterson. Rose got a hit in his first at-bat. The scoreboard said one hit away. He got a hit in his second at-bat. They're going crazy. He has tied the record. And then what's crazy is that Pete Rose did not take himself out of the game. Now remember, Pete Rose was terrible in 1985, right? He was the first baseman who did not hit for power, and his batting average was 264. The only real reason why he was on the Reds was so that he could chase this record, and oh, by the way, he was the player manager. And so the Reds' next game is a home game, but Pete Rose had a chance to break this record, which he had actually already just broken, he had a chance to do it on the road. And imagine how upset Marge Schott must have been, right? Marge Schott, famous for pinching pennies, and she wants you know, the attendance of, of all of these people coming and filling up Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati to watch this record be broken. Well, as it turned out, Pete Rose did not get a hit in his third at-bat or his fourth at-bat. Uh, they came home. 
And in the first game back, he did not start himself. In the second game in Cincinnati, he went 0 for 4. And then famously on September 11th, he got the hit off Eric Shaw. He broke the record, except again, the record was actually set three days earlier. Wow. You know, that reminds me, I've read something about Grover Cleveland Alexander and his wins total. I think his wins total changed after his death as well. I wish I could remember the origin. It was something similar to what you were describing with Pete Palmer. Um, then, of course, there's that Orioles story about the Sabre member that found an RBI. You remember, remember this? Was it, um, was it Hack Wilson? Because Hack thought Wilson was... went from 190, I think, to 191 RBIs. He like added an RBI like 60 years after his death. It, I bet it was a similar pursuit. Um, this player, it was Jim Gentile. Did he play for Baltimore? Um, Could be. He had something in his contract where, and for those of you listening, I'm just uh, riffing here if the details are a little bit off, but he had something where he had a $5,000 bonus if he led the American League in RBIs. Okay. And um, I think it was Garrick beat him by one. But in a similar search through microfilm, they found an RBI. (laughs) Does that mean that he got the money or his family got the money retroactively? The Orioles did the right thing. So he tied for the league lead in RBIs, and they had a ceremony at Camden Yards where this person that did the research, as well as the Orioles, presented a $5,000 check. I want to say the player was still living, but if not, it might have been a family member. But, I mean, what an achievement by those baseball researchers. You really change history in a way. It goes to show how much... To me, it just goes to show how much we take for granted the fact that Something happens, we record it, it happens instantly, whether it's in the minor leagues, whether it's in the major leagues, it's on, you know, uh, BAM's website, you know, maybe there's a scoring change afterwards, but it's immediately updated, the statistics are there, you can see them in real time, whereas, you know, it used to be the Sunday newspapers when you saw the batting leaders. Right. Well, my first year uh, with a minor league club was 2004, and the big prospect on that team with Kansas City's affiliate was Billy Butler. And in 2011, for some reason, I ended up on his baseball reference page, and it showed that he had one pitching appearance. I thought, what? They just gave this guy more than a million dollars. He was only 18 years old. Why would they risk an injury as some kind of fun experiment to have a pitch? And I'm thinking, I don't remember that happening. And then I remembered he didn't. We also had Billy Buckner on the team. And 2004 was the final year of the previous stats company. 2005 is when Bam took over, and they've been much better. Uh, for years, it was House Sports Data until the end of '03, and then this one year, 2004, was just this in-between company, and there were all sorts of errors like this. And I can remember being on my hotel room phone trying to call them because you had to physically call to get something changed. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, a couple of weeks passed, and the season ended. And Billy Buckner came in and pitched in relief, allowed a few runs. They thought it was Billy Butler. And here I was seven years later. They never changed it. Really? So I wrote a fun little article about this, and uh, through the wonders of Twitter, it found the right people, and now they did correct it. And poor Billy Buckner is sitting there seven years later with some added earned runs onto his career total. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Billy. All right, you're up next. What do you got? All right, let's keep it in town ball. Uh, This is a battle between two small towns in Missouri. May 1931. It's Cascade against Buckhorn. Cascade leads 1-0 with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning when a hitter named Byron Hovis hits a fly ball to left field. Clarence Johnson goes back to the fence, and according to the Dunkirk Evening Observer newspaper, 
the ball splits in half. <laughs> one piece flies over the fence. One piece is caught by the left fielder. <laughs> so these umpires get together, and they have this King Solomon-like decision. Because remember, there's two outs in the ninth inning, and it's a 1-0 score. And the so baseball has hand, split in half. The baseball splits in half. If you believe that the ball that went over the fence should count, it's a home run, it's a tie game in the bottom of the ninth. If you believe that the other half of the ball, which is caught, is really the one with merit, then the game's over, and the batting team loses 1-0. Fans are going crazy, according to this Dunkirk Evening Observer newspaper. Or do the home cr- Does the home crowd want it to be a home run, or does the home crowd want it to be an out? Which, which way? It's the bottom of the ninth, so they're, okay, they're okay. hoping for a game-tying home run. Okay. I have to imagine they're also stunned by what is taking place, and <laughs> how are we going to play tomorrow because our baseball's broken? <laughs> the umpire says both halves count. The game is over, and it's half of a run. Cascade, in the official article, beat Buckhorn one to a half. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That is actually a really smart explanation. I guess how else could you do it? Because you can't do a do-over because the ball's busted. <laughs> I mean, would you get into percentages? Well, he caught 52% yeah, of the baseball versus 48% of the baseball went over the fence. And whatever is the larger total is the, uh, is the deciding factor. I just remember when I read that, never thinking about the possibility that a team could score half of a run. <laughs> But it has happened. What was your headline for that? Did you have a headline for that story? Uh, yeah. I wish I remember what it was. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah. A baseball gets split in half. And once again, I, I think of the great Roy Hobbs and how he hit a baseball and it exploded. Right? right. And so the outfielders picking up the baseball and it's mush and they're throwing it in and the umpire says, where's the baseball? It's right here. No, that's what is that? It's no, where's the real baseball? So all of these stories always come back to the natural somehow. Maybe whoever wrote the natural uh, did all of this research before you did yeah, and then just yeah. turned it all into a brilliant screenplay. Yeah, it was my grandfather or something. <laughs> right. um, I never thought about that with the natural. Of course, a lot of the natural was taped at a minor league ballpark in Buffalo. New York Knights. Yeah. Okay. I got one. This is about the question of when does an inning actually start? Hmm. So it is uh, – first, let's, uh, let's go back to the year 2015. And uh, Major League Baseball powers that be are concerned that baseball games are taking too long, right? So they implement pace of play rules – so that there's a certain amount of time that you must be ready between innings. There are a certain amount of seconds that you must deliver the baseball between pitches or else you will be assessed a ball or a strike depending on uh, who is not quite ready. Well, back in 1911, Major League Baseball was also worried about how slow games were taking. They were worried that the current generation of baseball fans in 1911 thought the game was too slow. So our good friend Ban Johnson, yes, Ban Johnson (laughs) is getting a second plug in this podcast he championed a new idea and that was to limit the number of warm-up pitches and ban johnson declared that the pitcher had to be ready whenever the batter stepped into the batter's box 
Nowadays, you get a maximum of eight pitches. You can say after five or six that you're ready. But basically, when the pitcher says that he's ready is when he's ready. But back in 1911, Ben Johnson said, no, the inning shall begin when the batter steps into the batter's box. And it's the batter's choice? of Yes. Okay, well, now there was a player by the name of John Phelan McInnes. His nickname was Stuffy. You want to take a guess on why his nickname was Stuffy? His body size? I like that. However, apparently his unique nickname is from his boyhood playing days when teammates and spectators would shout, That's the stuff, kid! That's the stuff! (laughs) So he got the name Stuffy because that's the stuff, kid! That's the stuff! So Stuffy McKinnis is 20 years old. He's playing for the Philadelphia Athletics. The date is June 27th, 1911, and they are at Fenway Park. Boston pitcher Ed Carger is warming up. And as pitchers did back then, they would not max effort. They would just kind of lob the ball in in order to warm up their arm. The infielders and the outfielders are still making their way out to the positions. And good old Stuffy realizes what's going on. So he steps into the batter's box. This pitch is lobbed in, this warm-up toss, and he cranks it out to the outfield. (laughs) And Stuffy starts running. And the Red Sox infielders and outfielders are not quite sure what's going on, but Stuffy's around first. He's heading for second, and so now the Red Sox players are chasing after the baseball. The baseball rolls all the way to the wall. Stuffy is around second. He's heading for third. They're scrambling to chase after it. Stuffy goes all the way around the bases for an inside-the-park home run. As you might imagine, Hags, the Red Sox were not amused by this. They did not think that this should count. And so they protest to the umpires. This should not count. We were not ready. This was just a lob throw into home plate. The inning had not begun yet. Well, the umpires get together, and they decide a rule is a rule. The inning begins when a batter steps into the batter's box. He swung at the pitch. He hit it. The inside the park home run stood. It counted. (laughs) Well, the next day, the rule was changed. Really? And so now an inning shall not begin, and so the pitcher has had a chance to utilize the full complement of warm-up pitches, a maximum of eight. But that home run, to this day, still stands. That inside-the-park home run still stands. Maybe the most memorable inside-the-park home run in Fenway Park history, which inspired the end of a very brief rule change. So ban, ban the rule. Correct. First thing that comes to mind, you know... When we hear something bizarre like that, we think about it on the spectrum of today's game. And there weren't broadcasts back then, so you didn't need the time between innings. I could see where that originated at the time. Really, your only money source were people buying tickets. It wasn't flat screen Friday at Southwest (laughs) University Park in El Paso where every other half inning someone gets a free flat screen TV between innings. That's one of my favorite all-time promotions, by the way. Yeah. I love it. Times have changed. You know, Stuffy McGinnis... Must have been a good player because I've heard that name. I can't remember the context, but you figure a guy back then, if we've heard of him, he must have been a strong player. Well, he went on to play nine years for the Philadelphia Athletics. He spent four seasons with his hometown Red Sox. He helped the 1918 Boston Club win the American League pennant in the World Series. That was their last title before the uh, the Misfits from what year? 04. 04. Uh, broke the curse of the Bambino. He also played for the Boston Braves, Indians, Pirates. Oh, so he had a long career. 19 major league seasons, okay. 307 career batting average. Really good player. Stuffy McGinnis. That's the stuff. Imagine if you're coming back from a commercial break, Hags. 
<laughs> and, you're running. <laughs> and you're trying to explain to your audience <laughs> why there is an inside the park home run and you missed it. <laughs> wow. It'd be funny if uh, the commissioner's office is listening to you and they get ideas on pace of play. <laughs> it also make, cracks me up because whenever you hear stories about what's wrong with baseball, inevitably you run across some article from 100 years ago that says, yeah, they were worried about how much money was involved in baseball back in 1910 and, oh, the money is ruining right. baseball or the game is going too slow. Again, this was 1911 and they were worried that the games were taking too long. I remember one time hearing Ken Burns, the great documentary filmmaker uh, talking about his baseball series and he said he found a quote from the late 1800s in which a baseball manager said you know kids these days just don't play the game the way I did <laughs> and he said it the 1800s <laughs> which does make you wonder when someone says yeah he's old school is that what does that right. mean yeah does that mean 1960s does that mean 1930s does that mean 1890s what exactly is old school which I try to think about when there is a new style of play today. Um, I've been broadcasting minor league games enough to really see a change when it comes to the openness with celebrating. Right. Um, and I think anytime something like that evolves, you have to think about Stuffy McGinnis. Uh, the game's always a change and try to keep up with the times. You know, sure, you can take issue with things here and there, but don't become like that guy in the 1800s on the Burns quote. <laughs> right. All right, you're up next. What do you got? Okay, uh, let's go to something a little more modern era. What if I told you there was a triple play without the defense touching the ball? A triple play, three outs made, and the defense never touched the baseball. I take you to extended spring training, 1986, Sarasota, Florida. Uh, there's now an Orioles minor league manager named Keith Bodie who was managing this team. And he recalls this story with such clarity. The players' names, everything about it. And you see why he remembered it. So here's the scenario. Runners on at first and second at this extended spring training game. Uh, Bodie is with the White Sox club. They're playing the Astros club in Sarasota, Florida. Runners on at first and second. No outs, obviously. All triple plays begin with no outs. Um, it's a hit and run play. Both runners take off. Batter hits a pop-up in the air. As opposed to a pop-up on the ground. Hits a pop-up. You're a writer. I can't be redundant. You're going to kick me off the podcast. Uh, so this guy hits a pop-up. Infield fly rules called. One out. Batter's automatically out. Batter is out. There's one out. Runners advance at their own risk. Runner at second senses that this is a pop-up. I'm going to kind of linger near second. Runner at first is unsure of where the ball is. He's just flying around second despite the third base coach saying, no, 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 stop. And he passes the runner who was at second. Two outs, can't pass another runner. The one remaining runner gets hit by the batted ball. <laughs> Three outs. <laughs> and Keith Bodie says that that actually happened and remembered the exact details of a game that took place 32 years ago. Considering that it was extended spring training, for people who are not familiar, extended spring training games are those players who are not assigned to a full season minor league team. They often play in the morning before it gets too hot. They play a lot of inter-squad games. In this case, it was two teams playing one another. There's maybe 20 people in the stands. It's pretty much just girlfriends and wives and retired folks. 
who are watching this. Um, the how shall we say it's very uh, liberal in terms of winning inning ends. They don't want a pitcher to have to throw 50 pitches. So if he throws a certain number, even if there's three runs on base, they might say, roll it over. And that means the inning is over because he has thrown a certain number of pitches and they don't want the pitcher to get hurt. So there was, I'm guessing, including the players on the field, there was probably less than 100 people who were witnessing. Yes. And out of those, there's maybe five who understood what happened. The players sure didn't. It's a, a talented but very raw level of play. It's a lot of high school players, foreign players that are new to the United States. Um, you know, these guys have great skills. That's why they're there. But this is below rookie ball or single A. Do you think that afterwards, what was the name of the manager again? Keith Bodie. You think that Keith Bodie went on like a chalkboard or a, or a marker board <laughs> with like a diamond and sort of like explained Okay, these are the rules of baseball, and this is never going to happen again the rest of your life. But you Here's just what did something amazing, and this is what happened, and this is what we – was this a teaching moment? It had to have been. Uh, for Bodie, I got the sense getting to interview him about this. This is what I loved and continue to love about talking to these journeymen who – Every year they're in a uniform and they're on these buses going from city to city. And um, Keith Bodie, he was just put into the Texas League Hall of Fame. I think he's in his 60s now. Um, I think he told me he was picked out of high school. So this guy's been at professional baseball ballparks at various levels for 50 years. And what I loved is that this guy remembered the identical details of it. So um, I think it was a teaching moment for the players. And the fun part is for Bodie... It's the type of thing he's telling at a campfire or he's telling over some beers with his fellow minor league managers. Um, for him, I think it's such a unique memory. I once turned an unassisted triple play in a slosh ball game. <laughs> slosh ball? Slosh ball. Slosh ball is something that we played at San Diego State. You put a keg of beer at second base, and you're not allowed to go from second to third until you finished an entire cup of beer, which means that triples are like really difficult. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, triples are really difficult, and I, I want to say it is. It has been a number of decades now, and we were playing slosh ball. But I'm pretty sure there was something about like a force play at second base involving the keg, where like if you just threw the the, the softball and it hit the keg, then it would count as an out or something like that. So there was something like I was playing shallow center with a beer in my right hand and a glove in my left hand, and I came in and I made some catch, and I, like, touched the keg, and I touched somebody else. And I remember that I just, like, pointed it and and said it really confidently, and everyone was just like, yep, okay. (laughs) And that was the end of the inning. Slosh ball history. An unassisted triple play was turned by yours truly sometime in the early 90s in San Diego, California, at uh, Hardy Elementary. The back of Hardy Elementary was perfect because you had Wait, to you're drink. drinking at an elementary school? <laughs> yes, we were. It was, it was the most perfect location ever because you like had to kind of drive up this hill and then you could just barely squeeze through this back fence and then nobody could see you as they were driving by, so it was perfect seclusion. So it was the ideal place to play slosh ball. Congrats. Thank you. An unassisted triple play. That might be the highlight of my athletic career. All right, so I've got another one. We're going to go to the year 1982. And this is the time that Fred Stanley was on second base, and he wanted somebody to tag him out, but nobody wanted to tag him out. That's the backdrop for this. This is one of my all-time favorite stories because it involves the first year where I paid significant interest in baseball. Again, the year is 1982. The Oakland Athletics are terrible. 
However, Ricky Henderson is magnificent. Two years before, Henderson stole exactly 100 bases. In 1981, which is the strike-shortened season, Henderson stole 56 bases. And going into 1982, A's manager Billy Martin told Ricky, you should go for the single-season record. I want you to break the record. I want you to go for it. The record was 118 stolen bases by Lou Brock in 1974. So it's late August. And again, the A's are terrible. We know that they are not going to the playoffs. But the A's really want Ricky Henderson to break this record at home. Ricky is from Oakland. Billy Martin was from Berkeley. He once played for the minor league Oakland Oaks. They really want him to break the record at home. The A's have a 12-game homestand from August 13th through the 24th. And then after that, they were going away on a 10-game road trip. So if Ricky did not break the record during this long homestand, he would surely do it on the road. And again, it's all about attendance. You want to try and break these records at home. Ricky Henderson had 107 stolen bases going into this 12-game homestand. The record is 118, so he needed 11 to tie and 12 to break the record. Well, the final game of the homestand was a day game, Thursday, August 24th. It's against the Detroit Tigers, who were managed by Sparky Anderson. Ricky Henderson is at 115 stolen bases. He needs three to tie the record and four to break the record. In the first inning, Ricky walks. He's still second. Wayne Gross then walks. Ricky and Wayne Gross execute a double steal. Ricky then scored on a wild pitch. Classic Ricky run. <laughs> no hits. The ball never left the infield. In fact, the A's scored three runs in the first inning on zero hits. There was wow. three walks, a wild pitch, a ground out, and a sacrifice fly. So, Ricky is now one away from tying the record. In the second inning, with one out, Mike Heath walks. He's the catcher. He was batting eighth. And they did not want people getting in the way of Ricky Henderson. Heath tried to steal second base. He was safe. Then Fred Stanley struck out for the second out, and now Ricky is up with two outs, but he flies out to right field. In the fifth inning, Ricky flies out to center field. Now it's the eighth inning. Score is still 3 nothing. The A's are leading, but they're probably not going to bat in the bottom of the ninth. So it's now or never if Ricky Henderson is going to break this record at home. The leadoff batter of the inning is Fred Stanley. He walks. The A's crowd of 17,098 boos their own player because he's on base and he's blocking the mm. path of Henderson to steal this base. You see where this story yeah. is going, my friend. So Billy Martin decides, okay, I'm going to put on a hit and run with the idea being that if Ricky singles, Stanley can get to third and he'll be out of Ricky's way. Or if Ricky swings and misses, Stanley is thrown out and it's not too obvious what's going on and now the base is empty. Now, I have never talked to Fred Stanley. I've never met him to ask him. But I have a theory that as this hit and run was put on, he wasn't running very fast because in case Ricky swung and missed, he wanted to make sure that he was out at second base. Well, Ricky swung, and he hit a line drive base hit to left field, and Stanley could not go mm. to third. He had to stop at second. So now, Stanley is in the way. And what happens next depends on your perspective. <laughs> in the official play-by-play -play data, Fred Stanley was merely picked off second base. Now, let's fast forward to the year 2000. It is now 18 years after the fact. And Ricky Henderson granted an interview with New York Newsday. And Ricky said the following, quote, Fred Stanley's nickname was Chicken, by the way. Billy told that chicken to get his butt thrown out so he wouldn't be in second <laughs> in my way. But I hit the ball too hard and he had to stop at second. Billy wants me to run, but chicken's in the way. So Billy tells him to get picked off, get caught. So they throw a pitch and chicken is way off base and they don't even try to get him. We're playing Detroit and Sparky Anderson didn't want me to get the record. So he wouldn't let them tag out chicken. <laughs> He's way off the base and no one's even trying. And that old Derwood Merrill, 
the second base umpire, is getting madder and madder. He knew what was going on. He didn't like it. He made he forced them to make the play on chicken, and Sparky was mad. So eventually the Tigers tagged out Fred Chicken Stanley, even though they didn't want to. As a side note, I'm eight years old. I'm about to turn nine. I had sprinted home from Donlin Elementary and was listening to all of this on the radio. So now Fred Stanley is out of the way. Second base is open. Ricky needs one to tie the record, two to break the record. Ricky takes off. Ricky insists that he was safe, but he was called out. And there's a lot of people who believe that the umpire was going to call out Ricky Henderson no matter what on principle because of what had just happened. This is what Billy Martin said after the game. Quote, the umpire thought we had Stanley deliberately picked off. We had a double steal on. He was stealing third base. The only way that Stanley can get it is to get a big jump. I said, pal, he was safe. He earned it. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, after the inning, Dwayne Murphy goes out and argues about what happened. Dwayne Murphy gets ejected. Then Billy Martin goes out. He gets ejected. Bench coach Charlie Metro goes out, and he gets ejected as well. Ricky did not get ejected. (laughs) But the center fielder, the manager, and the bench coach did. And after the game, Tigers manager Sparky Anderson said the following, quote, All honor has left this game if Stanley is not fined the highest figure ever. If he isn't, there is no commissioner of baseball. I'm not talking in ones and twos. I'm talking tens and twenties. He's discredited this game, and it's totally unforgivable. I don't even want to hear what he has to say. The next day was a day off. The day after that, Ricky stole second base. He tied the record. The same umpire, by the way, Derwood Merrill, made the safe call. And then the following day, August 27th, 1982, on my birthday, shameless plug, Ricky broke the record in Milwaukee. He stole four bases in all in that game, and he finished with 130 for the season. Wow. So I get there are tales of people out of respect for a great opponent giving them a gift. Uh, it's suspected that Chan Ho Park fired a fastball down the middle to Cal Ripken Jr. in the 01 All-Star game. Um, Didn't uh, Brett Favre kind of make sure that... Michael Strahan's sack record. Yeah. I remember Terry Kennedy, the great catcher who used to manage the Padres AAA team, telling me out of reverence he had for Johnny Bench, Terry was catching for Bench's final at bat and let Bench know a fastball was coming. Now, they're not lobbing it in. It's still a major league fastball. You still have to earn it. But it's interesting that in that story, the opposite was taking place. I guess maybe in the others, like in Ripken and in Bench, they were veteran players at the twilight of their career, whereas Henderson was a young, brash, Mm -hmm. maybe even up-and-coming player at that time. Might be the difference, but it's interesting somebody like Sparky Anderson, with so much time in the game, acted that way. It actually Um, doesn't surprise me with Sparky. I mean, Sparky was as hard-nosed and as whatever old school means, whatever decade or century old school refers to is Sparky Anderson. I read this great book by uh, Joe Posnaski about the 1975 Reds, and it was really this it was really this culture clash of the way that the country was going with longer hair, and especially when the A's and the, and the, Red, and the Reds met in 1972, and the A's had long hair, and they had mustaches and beards, and they had colorful clothing, and the Reds was like, no, if you're going to be seen in public, you must be wearing a suit and a tie, and we're going to be clean cut. We're the all-American Cincinnati Reds versus those outcasts from Oakland, California. So Sparky definitely saw the, way, saw the world in a certain way, and in his view, now this also might have been, Sparky Anderson and Billy Martin managed for a long time. They probably have had a lot of different right. times where they crossed paths and did not like one another. That's true. So there could have been some additional history that's going on here. Well, so once where, again, it goes into like morality and like the right way, 
quote, the right way to break a record or the wrong way to break a record and how much importance we place on doing it at home, especially if it leads to bigger attendance. The key to that story to me is that the A's were out of it. Yes. You'd never want to do anything to jeopardize a game that had consequence. Um, You know, you see that in September when a major league team has clinched a playoff spot. Now, if they're playing the last place team, they'll rest some regulars getting them ready for the playoffs. But I've seen the good managers out of respect to the game. If they're playing an opponent that has to do with another pennant race, they're still playing their guys. They're still fighting to win that game. So I think that's an important part of your story there. Um, I don't blame Stanley. I know the quote there that people are upset with him saying he should be massively fined. If his manager told him to do it, I don't blame Stanley. i got to think if I'm the runner at second and an iconic manager like Martin told me to do something, I would do it. And also I think that's it's kind of like, you know, we're galvanized in this season by what Ricky Henderson's trying to do when we're all pulling for our teammate and you want to reward the fans who have been here and give him an opportunity to do it. it it's a very gray matter. I, I can totally see why Sparky was upset, but I can also see why Billy Martin, you know, prideful guy. I'm from Oakland. Ricky's from Oakland. It's a day game in Oakland. 17,000 is not a huge crowd, but actually by Oakland standards, especially in 1982, like for a day game, that actually is a big crowd and the crowd is delirious. They're fired up. Remember games, every game was not on television back then. The reason why I rushed home and was listening on the radio is because it was not on television. As it turned out, I think, I want to say, now this could be uh, my brain from age nine, not comprehending the reality, but I want to say that they added the next two games on television in Milwaukee because of the record so that we could see it. I don't know if they were originally on the schedule. So it all kind of like, again, I I just think it it becomes an interesting morality situation question and from how different the world is. Yeah. What I like about baseball is the generosity toward opponents. I think a lot of old school people might have a different view on this, but, um, you know, this is a great story. I, I don't think Rod Barajas would mind if I shared. It's a, a story that shows the tenacity of Scott Rowland. But um, Rod was catching for Toronto. Scott Rowland was his teammate. And there was a batter who swung and fouled the ball down off his foot. And this batter's just hobbling in pain all around. And as the batter is finally ready to get back in the box, Rod picks up his bat and gives it to him. And Rowland was such a competitor after the game. He said, don't do that. But I see people do that all the time. You see the catcher. So I guess on that tiny example, what's your viewpoint? You are, in a small physical way, making the batter a little more comfortable. I kind of like the politeness, the gentleman's agreement that baseball has with little gestures like that. But I also see Roland's perspective. He was probably an old-school player, the way you mentioned that phrase earlier, uh, that didn't like any kind of advantage. That's your enemy for those three hours. So did Scott Roland ever, like... Before the game, during batting practice, go up to a former teammate or a guy from his area and give him like that man's shoulder in and then kind of wrap it around halfway hug? I wonder if maybe he didn't or if maybe at 7.05 is when he got into that mode. Whereas around batting practice time, maybe could be friendly then. But once the game starts, no helping of a bat to to an opposing player. All right, we got time for one more. What else you got, Hags? Okay. I like how I say we have time. We have endless amounts of time. (laughs) It's a podcast. We can go on as long as we want. So let's go back to the Cotton States League. 
What's great about the Cotton States League is it was a well-documented Class D league and that they had newspaper coverage and then those articles live on. Uh, what I find in my hobby, as we described it earlier, is some of these leagues, based on the newspaper coverage, Nashville, for example, there's so much on Nashville baseball history, game stories, features, going back decades. Um, and fortunately, this league has a lot of that as well. So in 1908, it is pouring rain at Vicksburg for this Class D game in Mississippi. And the infield dirt is flooded. But this umpire, out of integrity for the game, wants to get it in. It's August. It's late in the year. Probably an important game. Umpire's name is LaRock. LaRock? LaRock. L-A-R-O-Q-U-E. And according to the Spalding 1909 Baseball Guide, LaRock says, okay, the infield dirt is flooded. We just can't play there. But we're going to set up a diamond in the outfield. Makeshift diamond. He counts out the baselines, and they batted from in front of the center field fence and played a game oriented that way. <laughs> and even by 1908 standards, this was stunning. The Spalding 1909 guide says this is, quote, a precedent in organized baseball circles. Even back then, they thought this was crazy. But the game counted. They did it. I really do think the Pacific Coast League needs to adopt this. <laughs> I think it needs to be put into the bylaws that we will cover the infield dirt, <laughs> but we will simply just create a new makeshift diamond in center field because the grass, that's what you hear everywhere. The grass drains great. Don't worry right, about yeah. it. As long as the infield's protected, we're fine. <laughs> yeah, and that's what made me think of that is that uh, there's a reason the tarp covers only the infield. And even back then, the outfield grass isn't as much of a problem when it comes to a big rainstorm. It's really the dirt that makes it hard to run on and a safety hazard for the players. But, yeah, he uh, played the game backwards. So we are recording this from beautiful Southwest University Park in El Paso, Texas. We're both looking out to the field right now. So I'm envisioning in my mind what this would look like. Now, <laughs> and so I'm trying to think of, like, the different obstacles that would be involved with this. Um, number one, there is not netting for wicked foul balls. Yeah. And so that would be an issue for the fans. But... The fans who sit in what is normally left center, it is a grass berm area, they suddenly have front row seats. <laughs> and those who have paid whatever you guys charge for front row seats are now 406 feet away. Now, would you th do you think that management of the Opaso Chihuahuas would say, all right, fans of the first row, you get to pick your seats out in left center field for this reconfigured mm. game. And sorry, folks, in the general mission area, we're going to force you to sit next to the dugouts, which is now the outfield. I have to think there's no active minor league general manager that has thought about how they would handle this. <laughs> it seems like that would be a real hassle, though, to move everybody. Maybe you just kind of treat it as a gift for the folks that were in the less expensive seats. You know, but then I look at the foul poles here. Um, there's no way there's an outfield line connecting to any makeshift foul poles. So there really was a lot of pressure on the umpire for fair foul balls. That actually reminds me, I've heard a lot of stories about how and this happened multiple times. I want to say that it happened at Wrigley Field in Chicago and other places where you'd have a big crowd and you'd have an overflow crowd, and they would just do standing room only on the warning track. Yeah. So a home run would basically be once the ball disappears into the crowd. It wouldn't have to go over the fence. It just once it gets into the crowd. And so when the home team would bat, the fans would move forward like 10 feet. So to make it a little bit shorter in order to hit the home run. And then when the visiting team is batting, they move back as much really? as they possibly can in order to add a couple of extra feet in order to try and gain an advantage for the local nine. Huh. You know, with the Cotton States League game, 
I think we haven't touched on the biggest thing. There wouldn't have been a mound. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Pitcher was just throwing from level ground. Is this why, going back to your first story, somebody died chasing a foul ball because they had <laughs> reconfigured the field? Could have been. When you asked me about an earlier headline, I couldn't remember, but this one I do. We called it Pickup Game. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> Pickup Game. All right. You got anything else? I have one more, but it's really long, and I kind of want to keep this around an hour. So do you have one more that you want to share with us? Sure. Uh, there's a player named Mike Donlin who was batting 402 for the Santa Cruz Sand Crabs in 1899. Santa Cruz is where Isotopes manager Glen Ellen Hill is from. It's a beautiful oh, area. I love big Santa surfing Cruz. area, right? Yeah, yeah, love Santa Cruz. My mom used to live there. We'd go, uh, we'd go there for the day all the time. Okay. So this guy's hitting great. He's getting some national coverage and sporting news and some other publications. And the Cardinals say we want this guy. Dolan, though, was a bit of a loose cannon. So when the Cardinals called him, he was in jail for public drunkenness. <laughs> they were able to get a hold of him and offer him a contract. So these St. Louis Cardinals have called up a player from jail in their history. <laughs> but it was interesting to read about Donlin, this character. Uh, this guy was wild. Uh, later in his career, he got stabbed in a bar room. In a separate incident, he got kicked out of the American League for a fight on a subway. Not suspended. Kicked out of the American League. And in 1904, he reportedly sang so badly at a tavern that a patron pulled a revolver on him. <laughs> That's a bad song. Again, I'm thinking of how life imitates art. And so, Major League, where were you last year? California Penal League? Maybe this was the inspiration for Wild Thing. Maybe this Could was the been. original Wild Thing. <laughs> Once again, showing that when it comes to what players Major League Baseball teams are going to sign, morality only goes so far <laughs> as a 400 batting average. Even back then, yeah. Wow, I want to know more about this guy now. I mean, that's some really bad karaoke. Yeah, Mike Donlin. Mike Donlin. All right, Hags, this was fun. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Great idea. Maybe we'll do this again if we can come up with some interesting ideas, and I'll try to make mine not last 20 minutes. <laughs> No, good stories. I learned a lot from you. You're so, so motivated. You have you have these side projects. You develop and you nail them. So glad to be part of it today. So today we learned that when you are pursuing a foul ball, you should watch out for trains. <laughs> we learned that if a baseball splits in half, you can get a half run. We learned that there's a person named Ban who had a lot of influence. He cheated numbers in order to make sure that Ty Cobb won a batting title. We learned that the same guy named Ban wanted to speed up the game back in 1911, and so he instituted a rule that the inning begins when someone steps into the batter's box. We've learned that Billy Martin wanted Fred Chicken Stanley to get out of the way so that Ricky Henderson could break a single-season stolen base record at home. And we learned that if it's too wet to play on the infield, you just simply flip-flop the field and you play from the outfield. That's good stuff, Hags. You covered a lot. This, yeah, I learned on that A's story, uh, it's not always possible to get tagged out, even when you're trying. This is Life Around the Seams. <laughs> <laughs>